If you would, please turn to Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 30. We'll be a passage this morning. As you turn in, let me show you, kind of, I'm not kind of, but it is some, some good news. So, uh, so Edgardo, who preached in my staff for the past couple of weeks, you know, he was expecting he had, uh, they had their baby. Uh, I think it was a couple days ago, actually. So, so praise the Lord for that. So Luke 22, picking up in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, that is, among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray for our hearts this morning. Lord, it takes a measure of humility to sit under your word, and it certainly takes a measure of humility to preach your word. For your word is transcendent. Your word comes with authority because they are your word. These are your very words. So we ask, God, that we may come before you to be taught by you, to be instructed, to be convicted, to be encouraged. We pray these things through the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Humility is an attractive quality. Right? We are naturally attracted to, we, are naturally, we naturally gravitate towards those who are marked by humility. And humility is something that you can sense in people. It's something that you can also see. Where you can tell somebody who is humble, and likewise, you can tell somebody if somebody is not humble. You can tell, you can sense when somebody isn't humble, but the opposite, when they're prideful. Either because they're too showy, they're too pompous, they're full of themselves. Maybe they don't like to do anything or serve other people. And we are naturally repelled by people like that. Maybe even repulsed. John Newton once said that, I am persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences that he is indeed our master. Everybody, whether you're Christian or not, you need some measure of humility to have a decent life. But the Christian is especially, especially should be marked by humility. And humility is something that he continues or she continues to grow in time after time, year after year. And as we, in the passage that we just read, 
We see both. We see both humility and we see pride. And so, kind of the, the main thrust and the main theme of this sermon this morning is humility. And so I want to show you the humility of Jesus Christ. And for that, I want to turn us to the Gospel of John chapter 12. I don't remember if I had these actually up in the... Ah, no, I don't. I don't think I do. I can't remember if I, if I submitted these to, to Laurel to put up on the projector, but I do want to read some passages in the Gospel of John chapter 12, just for some context surrounding the Palm Sunday. So John chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with, had been with him when he called out Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him as they went was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So here is Jesus. And at this point, he's reached the the, the height of his popularity. He enters into Jerusalem and the people are lining the streets and they're worshiping him with palm branches and hence why you have some palm branches with you. They're not to whip each other with, in case you're wondering. But they're lining the streets and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it tells us that there were witnesses here to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It just happened moments ago. Those who saw this incredible miracle were also there at Jerusalem worshiping Jesus. Not only that, but you would have to assume that the word had gone out. Even if people didn't see the miracle for themselves, they had heard about what Jesus had done. And it's a Passover week. People, there are pilgrims traveling into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they're hearing about Jesus. They see Jesus sitting on a colt, entering Jerusalem, and they're worshiping him. People worshiped him as the Messiah, their king, but they didn't have the right understanding, right interpretation of that, of his kingliness or what he came to do. Or if you know your Old Testament, it's kind of, I, I compare it to King Saul, when the people wanted a king. And it wasn't bad to desire a king. In fact, the Lord had said that he would give them a king. But when the people came asking, asking Samuel for a king, they wanted a king to be like other nations. They wanted a king that was like other kings. And so they got Saul, who wasn't a good king. And here, the people are worshiping Jesus as their king. 
but they're, a desire, they're desiring a king in their own image. It's not the kind of king that Jesus came to be. They were wanting deliverance from Rome, but Jesus came to deliver them from something much more oppressive than Rome. And then moments later, or days later actually, Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And he's instituting the Lord's Supper. He's instituting the new covenant. This is the bread which represents my bruised body on your behalf. This is the cup which represents the new covenant in my blood for the remission of your sins. And it is in that context as he's sharing this meal with his disciples that he tells them that seated at this table is a betrayer. So Jesus is worshipped, entering into Jerusalem. Days later, he celebrates the Passover. And there's a traitor at, seated at the table. So back in our passage in, in Luke, there's a dispute Actually, before that dispute, it tells us in verse 23 of Luke 22 that after Jesus had told them that there was a betrayer, they begin to question each other. They begin to ask each other questions. Well, who is it? Is it you, John? Is it you, Peter? Is it you, Thomas? Wait, who is it? And they're defending themselves, I would think, right? Well, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's not me. And then in verse 24, it tells us that, it, that the conversation then transitions to a conversation or dispute about who is to be regarded as the greatest. I think it's a natural transition to go from, well, it's not me, I'm not the betrayer, to go then to talk about, well, I'm the greatest, as a way of defending why it's not you who's the betrayer of Jesus. Well, it's not me because I've done this. It's not me because I saw the transfiguration. Hey, Jesus said that I am a, I'm an Israelite with, with whom there's no guile, right? That's what Jesus said about Thomas. Probably pointing to the closeness of relationship with Jesus. It's definitely not me. Perhaps pointing to what they've done to show why they're the greatest and not, they're, they're not the one who, who's going to betray Jesus. How is greatness defined? How do you define greatness? Is it defined by intellectual prowess? Is it defined by an IQ score? Is greatness defined by what one achieves with his life? Is greatness defined by one's possessions? The disciples considered themselves great, probably depending upon what they did. And I think in the passage, it's also telling us that greatness, at least in the, to the world, greatness is defined by one's authority. The greater authority you have, well, the great, the, I guess, the, the greater that you are. But then, so then Jesus responds to this dispute that the disciples are having between one another, but his response is not generated by a definition of greatness, but the pride that's in the heart of his disciples. 
Though I think he does define what greatness actually means in this passage. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So what does it mean by being the youngest? That if you want to be great, you've got to be the youngest. Well, the youngest are typically the ones who are the least experienced, the least knowledgeable, maybe even the least mature. Right? It, it is the... And I don't think Jesus means younger as in like younger in age, but I think he means more, much more like inexperience. But you typically don't see the youngest inexperienced person in great positions of leadership. Right? Definitely not in the world. But they typically, they normally have to work their way up. They begin at the very bottom and then with time, with practice, with knowledge, with experience, a growing capacity, growing understanding, they climb up, up and up the ladder. And he says that the leader must be one who serves. Jesus is not saying that all leaders need to stop leading and start serving because we still need leaders to lead. But if the world defines greatness by one's authority, and those in authority normally delegate all responsibility and look to be served, which I think is the comparison that Jesus is making in the passage, Jesus is turning that understanding on his head and saying, well, no, the, those who are leaders, even those who are in greatest positions, should also be servants. So what's the connection here between the younger and the servant? And what connects them both is humility. It takes a measure of humility to start at the very bottom and work your way up. And it certainly takes a measure of humility for a leader, especially one who is in a great position of authority to serve other people. Humility is what connects those both, those, both of those things. Rather, let the greatest among you Become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines that table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines that table? So Jesus is saying that typically the one who is reclining at table is greater than the one who is serving, because the one who is reclining is reclining, and the one who is serving is the one who is serving. Especially in their context, especially for their culture. When you invite somebody into their home, into, into your home, right, you're required to take your sandals off your feet. And if the host had servants, well, then they would have the servants wash your feet. And then you'd be led into the table and asked to recline at table, and then you'd be served as the guest. Whether the person who is invited to the table is a position of is in a great position of authority or not, you would consider right the guest to be in a much more honorable position than you are because you, as the host, are is the one who is serving the guest, and the guest is just simply reclining at table. But then Jesus says this: 
For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. That's a shocking statement. Because the disciples know who Jesus is. He's their rabbi, right? He's their teacher. He's their master. He's their leader. When Jesus speaks, everybody is silent. People listen. They know the miracles. They have seen firsthand the miracles that Jesus had performed. They understand Jesus to be the Messiah, though they don't fully at this point understand what being the Messiah means for Jesus. But regardless, they have some understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus says that he's the one who serves. And Jesus serves not because he's ignorant of who he is. It's not because he doesn't know exactly who he is. But he knows exactly who he is. Back in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, this is the Passover meal. This is just Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. There's a lot that Jesus knows. He knows that it is his hour of departure. And that hour in the the Gospels means that it is the hour of his crucifixion. He knows that the time has come. Time is running short. It is time for the Son of Man to be given into the hands of sinners, be killed, and rise from the dead. That hour had come. He knew this. And he also knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. That points to the divine supremacy of Jesus Christ. God had given everything into the hands of his beloved Son. Jesus will even say later that God had given into the hands of Jesus the freedom to give eternal life to whomever he will. That's power. That's authority. So Jesus knows that he'd been given all authority by God himself, and Jesus also knew of his divine origin, that he had come from God. He knew exactly where he came from. And Jesus also knew where he was going, his divine destination. He was going back to God. So Jesus knew exactly who he was. Jesus will even pray later on in the Gospel of John, John 17. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Right? Jesus is not created. Jesus is God. Jesus had always dwelt with God. Jesus had, there was never a time where Jesus did not exist. And Jesus had glory before the world existed 
and he certainly had glory when he came to this earth as a human being or took on humanity to add to his divinity. But the original glory that was his before he came into the world, will he will receive again, and he did receive again when he entered at the right hand of God. And so Jesus knew all of these things. And so you might expect, here back in, in Luke, this dispute among the disciples, you might expect that Jesus would rebuke them and say, no, you need to humble yourselves and serve me. You are not greatest. Trust me, I know. None of you are great. So be humble and serve me. But he doesn't say that. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. There's a change of positions here. Jesus is the one who serves. So the one who is reclining at table is not Jesus, but it's the disciples. They're the ones reclining at the table where Jesus is serving them. And in the Gospel of John, as we read more about this Passover meal, we also read that Jesus got down on his knees to wash the feet of his disciples. I am among you as the one who serves, Jesus says. It's not that they have greater honor than Jesus. It's not that they're greater than Jesus, but Jesus is seeking to honor them. And as we're thinking about Palm Sunday, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, what is the mission of Jesus Christ? Mark 10.45. If you don't have that verse committed to memory, I would encourage you to commit that verse to memory. That is the mission of Jesus. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ is the least person that you would expect to be serving sinners. But he does. It's not Romans 12:3. Jesus is marked by humility. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. I think there's another passage that I don't think I have up for the screen, but if you would, turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is marked by humility. He knew exactly who he was, and yet he was still marked by humility, and he served others. You want to know what humility is? Romans 12.3 has the answer. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Humility is having the right assessment of yourself in relation to God and others. Humility 
is having the right assessment or the right estimation of yourself in relation to God and others. How do you know if you have a right estimation of yourself? Think of it this way. Here's some questions for you to think about and answer on your own. Do you have a tendency to reject hospitality? When someone, say, wants to do something kind for you, maybe pick up something for you, or invite you into their home for a meal, do you have a tendency to reject such hospitality that you are thinking too highly of yourself? You're not having a right estimation of yourself. It takes humility to serve, but it also takes humility to be served. Maybe you think, well, it's, I'm kind, I don't want somebody to go through the trouble. It's an inconvenience. Maybe I live too far out of the way. I don't want anybody to go through all the work of doing that, so I just tell people, no, it's okay. I'm fine. It's okay. You don't have a right estimation of yourself you might be actually thinking too less of yourself maybe thinking that you are not worth such kindness or love. Again, it takes humility to serve, but it also takes humility to be served. Or ask yourself this, when was the last time I served someone else? When was the last time I had someone in my home? When was the last time I showed hospitality to somebody? Am I serving in some way, shape, or form today? If you can't think of the last time you were able to serve somebody in some way, you, have, you're not, you don't have a right estimation of yourself in relation to God and others. You're thinking too highly of yourself. Because a Christian is marked by humility. And what humility looks like practically is serving. And so it is, it should be natural for the Christian to want to serve. And what happens is that when you have a right estimation of yourself in relation to God and others, is that it frees you to be able to serve and be served. Listen, I'm going to tell you something that might sound offensive, but I mean this as kind and as loving as possible. You're not that great. You're not that great. And I'm not either. What's the Bible tell us about us as human beings? We're sinners, wicked, love darkness, haters of God, children of wrath, even children of the devil. But through the redemption of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, receive forgiveness, you receive mercy, you receive grace, you receive eternal life, you receive acceptance into heaven itself. You are adopted as a son or daughter of God. And being a son or daughter of God doesn't necessarily make you great. It just makes you a family member of the household of God. 
and family members serve. And when you understand who you are in Jesus Christ, you don't see serving or being served as something that is diminishing of, of, of your character. You don't see that as something shameful or something as degrading because you are confident in who you are in Jesus Christ. So it's liberating. It frees you to serve and to be served. And this is what we see in the example of Jesus Christ, knowing that his hour had come, knowing who he was, knowing where he was going, knowing where he came from, knowing that all things had been given into his hands, what did he do afterward? Knowing all those things, he got down on his knees and he served his disciples. He continued on the path of the cross and died for sinners. Jesus knew exactly who he was, and he didn't see his serving us as a defamation of his character. He didn't see this as, his, as a, as a uh, diminishing of his glory and splendor and majesty and royalty. But because he knew who he was, that freed him, that liberated him to able to serve us even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus knew exactly who he was. And he served us by heading, making a straight path to the cross to serve us because he loved us and because he knew also that there is no way that you and I can get up there, not on our own, in all amount of good works or good deeds, no matter how many times we might confess to a priest, Nothing that you and I could ever do will ever get us up there. He knew that in order for us to get up there to heaven, to be with God, someone must come down from heaven and make a way for us to get to him. And that is why he came and died and was resurrected to make a way for us to be with him forever and ever and ever. And it wasn't an inconvenience. Even if serving other people is work, even if serving someone means going out of your way, it's not an inconvenience when there is love. When you love the person, it isn't an inconvenience. Jesus certainly wasn't inconvenienced by stepping down from heaven and serving us by dying for us because he loved us to the very end. So then what must we do? And if you don't, if you're here and if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, it takes a measure of humility to believe in the gospel. Because believing in the gospel means admitting that you are in need of a savior that you are a sinner deserving of the condemnation of God. It's easier, it's certainly easier to depend upon our own works 
than it is to depend on the works of another. But that is exactly the gospel. The gospel is depending on the work of another person on your behalf. If you don't know Jesus, I'm asking, I'm pleading with you to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in the work of someone else so that you may be saved, so that you may be forgiven, so that you may receive eternal life with Christ. And for us as Christians, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, the exhortation is to put on humility. But let me give you just a practical way to consider putting on humility. So back to the passage, again, Jesus says, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines that table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Right, so the idea here is that the one reclining at table is greater than the one who is serving. But Jesus also says that if you desire to be great, then you must be the servant of all. Jesus says this, the rest of the New Testament affirms this, that we must put on the posture of a servant. We're called to serve. Ephesians 6 tells us, right, that we are to put on the armor of God, a shield, sword, helmet, breastplate, all those things, right? Because we are contending against the world, the flesh, and the devil, because life itself is an uphill battle. But the one who is decked out in the spiritual armor of God, you know what he wears inside that armor? He wears an apron. She wears an apron because she's ready to serve. In the passage, in Jesus' example, the one who was greater, in the context of this fellowship surrounding a table, the one who is greater is the one who is being served. It's not that the guest is somehow inherently better, but there is a deference shown to the guest. There's an honor shown to the guest. Romans 12.10 tells us, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So one practical way to put on humility and show honor to one another is through table fellowship. It is having people over for a meal. Now I get it. COVID makes things difficult for us. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm tired of having to qualify different things I'm saying because of COVID. So can I just, from now on, just week in and week out, just give you the exhortations, give the application, and then I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit convict you and show you what that looks like practically for your own family and for your own households. Just so I don't have to keep repeating myself, COVID this or COVID that or because of COVID this. It just saves me effort and energy and my voice. But consider table fellowship. Because what happens when you have somebody over a meal is that what the, the, the host the entire burden falls on the host, right? They're spending the money because it takes money to have somebody over for a meal. They're spending the time prepping the meal, the energy. The host is the one who serves the entire burden. And I know that, right, we can, uh, we, we can help clear the table and things like that, and that's helpful and we should do that, but most of the burden falls on the host. 
the guest simply just has to go into the home and just sit, relax, and eat the meal they didn't have to prepare. During the passage, in Luke twenty two twenty eight, Jesus says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus calls the disciples to serve, but then he also tells them that in the end, when they are reunited in heaven, they'll be the ones reclining at table. They'll be the ones who serve. Well, maybe, maybe you and I will get to be there and serve Jesus and the 12 apostles. Put the food in front of them to, to, to replenish their wine. That's an honorable thing. And if you don't think that's honorable, then you might have a wrong interpretation of what heaven is and what heaven is about. It is the honor of the host to have guests. And it is the honor of the guest to be served in this way. And so it's a practical way. There's definitely several other ways that you can put on humility and serve one another, but this I'm just giving you one practical way of showing honor to one another. Maybe you already do this, and that's wonderful and that's great, and I would encourage you to do that, but I just want to help kind of renew your mind and give you a kind of a different perspective of what it looks like to have people in your home and help you to see it as a way that you are honoring another individual, another person. Right, and the Lord Jesus in the New Testament actually tells us that we, as servants of Christ, those, as those who serve one another, we in turn will be honored in heaven. We will be rewarded for the things that we do here on earth. Really, there's nothing wrong with pursuing honor from the Lord by showing honor to one another. In fact, every time that we have people in our home, we do it selfishly because we are looking honor for ourselves. Not that we want, don't, not that we don't care about you. We love having people in our home, but showing honor to one another is a way that you continue to reap rewards in heaven. So consider that kind of fellowship. Consider hosting somebody. Consider bringing somebody a meal. Consider even going to someone's home and bringing the meal to them and even maybe cooking it for them. Consider even going the extra mile if you're trying to invite somebody into your home. Maybe even consider going to pick them up and bring them to your home and then take them back home, right? I know that's a lot of work. It is, that is work. And I'm not saying you have to do it, but something to consider as a way to show honor. And if you have a, and if you have a family, it's wonderful to be invited to somebody's home where your whole family is invited. But if you're looking to invite somebody who has a family and looking just to have an intentional time with the mother and father or with the wife and husband, maybe even consider finding, it, finding for them a babysitter. Like, hey, we want to invite you to our home. We found you a babysitter. Just want to honor you in this way. Yeah, that's, that sounds great to me. But we're called to put on humility, to serve, and to show deference, to show honor to one another, just as Christ served us. 
as Christ looked ahead and was intentional in the pursuit of the cross, as the way that he would most serve his people, may we also just be intentional in the pursuit of each other with the purpose of showing honor to one another by serving one another. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are incredibly thankful for how you have served us by coming into the world and dying on the cross so that we, through faith in you, may receive the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Lord, may we follow your example, your example of humility. God, grow us in humility. Help us to outdo one another in serving each other and showing honor to one another. Help us, God. There is some pride, some semblance of pride in each and every one of us. And for some of us, we may not even be aware of it. And that pride may be something that is in us for the rest of our lifetime just because of our sinful nature. But we ask, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you may grow us in humility, that we may exude a Christ-likeness, and that we may display that humility by serving one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.